0: Thanks, Mac. Appreciate it. Good evening, everyone. Yo, every single time, I need to say it twice. Good evening, everyone. It's, uh, it really is good to, um, to be up here again. It's been a couple of months, and I'm excited. And I think while they're getting that ready, I'm going to tell you a quick joke. Not all of you will get it. The joke is Daniel Medvedev. Uh, some of you got it. Some of you. Who doesn't watch tennis? okay, if if someone's hands up, please lay your hands on them we're gonna we're gonna pray before we before we start, okay, choking. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll start. Yeah, Father, thank you so much for this evening, Lord. and um God, I want to thank you for the gift of what you're busy doing here, lord. i don't really understand it, God. <laughs> I don't lord i'm I'm looking around and I see so many new faces, so many people coming. I'm summoning you new believers and uh, and visitors, and Lord, you you building your church, God, and I'm just so reminded of the fact that that what I get to do and what Mac and Godfrey and anyone who's a leader gets to do, Lord, we only get to water, we only get to sow, but it's you that brings the increase. Lord, it's you that's working in your church, and this evening we commit into your hands, Lord, as I'm going to bring the word, I, I commit it into your hands, Lord, that you would bring the growth in our hearts. Lord, we desire to be closer to you. We desire to be more like you. We desire to glorify you through our lives and to make a difference for you in this world. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. 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 Those of you who don't know me, my name's Leonard, and it's really good to be with you. The only reason I'm saying that is there are so many faces that I feel like I don't know, but that's been the, uh, it's been like our motto for the last couple of months, right? But hopefully soon we won't have to wear masks anymore, and then I won't have any excuse anymore not to know your name. I'll have to think of another excuse, because the Mass has made it difficult. But before I get to tonight, you can actually... Luke, are you there? You can, uh, you can put up the title slide about what I'm going to speak about. So I want to speak about something that you would have heard sermons about this. And many of you, when you hear sermons about this, when this goes up, you think, Oh no, not again, I'm going to feel condemned. It's the big D word. And it's intimidating. And you think, oh, I need to do something for God, but that's intimidating. I'm still trying to sort myself out. How much more should I be able to now reach out to others? But I want to, in a sense, I I think I want to bring a a bit of a different message to us tonight, something that I feel is for us as a church, and something of a tweak that I feel for us will help us to make the impact that God is calling us to have. So I'm going to tell a story, I've told it many times. Some of you have been in church a couple of, for a while, will be able to tell it for me. If any of you want to come and tell the August story, then you're welcome to come and tell it. But just because there's so many new faces, I thought I'm, I'm going to tell it again. If I can get half of you to laugh, then my ego will be okay. And half of you are, are new. So just to explain, I know this is an intimidating thing, but I first want to tell you a story as um, as a way of illustration. A couple of years ago, actually it was in 2010, 11, round about there. So yes, I'm that old. round about there, well, I was out of school. So yes, I'm that old. So we, we have this thing in, in the Western Cape called the Cape Town Cycle Tour, or the Cape Argus. I don't know if you've heard of it. Any of you heard of that race before? It's 110 kilometers on a bicycle, and you go over Chapman's Peak, you go over Saikar Borsi. And for someone with massive upper legs like me, and I'm joking, I don't have. There's basically nothing here. So something like that is not, it's, it's not something that I actually enjoy. It's not something that I'm, I'm prone to doing. But I had this friend... Still have this friend called Christopher, and he I always teased him and said he's like a big panda bear. I love to give him hugs because he's soft and squishy. And Christopher, every single year, for a couple of years, he went and he did the Cape Town Cycle Tour without exercising, no exercise at all. Once a year, he would get on a bicycle. He would do the Cape Town Cycle Tour, 110 kilometers on his bicycle. And I thought, I'm a typical guy. If Spot can do it, Christopher can do it then I can do it, anyone else like that? <laughs> if they can do it, I can do it. So the furthest before that, that I've ever cycled on a bicycle was about 30 kilometers. And when I got off the bicycle, my legs literally felt like jelly and I couldn't walk. It went like this and I had to sit down. So I thought, no man, I'm a bit older now, I've been eating a bit more, I, you know, I can, I can do it. If my friend can do it, I can do it. And I got on the bicycle that day to do the K-Town cycle tour without exercise. And at about 90 kilometers, they stopped me and said, please get off your bicycle, you could hurt yourself. And I wasn't able to finish. Just to give you an idea, I didn't have a bicycle, I had to get a bicycle from someone. I didn't know that I had to check the wheels beforehand, so it was flat basically all the way that I cycled. So when I would free down the hill, I would actually have to pedal in order to stay with the people freeing because the bicycle wasn't keeping up. I, nothing that I wore was actually my own. I had my own tackies on, and that was about it. I got socks from someone else. I got those cycling bibs from someone else. And I got the cycling shirt that was way too big for me. And that day at the August, it was 44 degrees Celsius up Chapman's Peak. 44 degrees. I didn't put Sunblock on because I thought, we're just going to go cycle. I'll be done now. And afterwards, because this shirt was so big for me. I had bananas here at the back. I burnt a v-neck here at the back of my, my back. And it was so horrible. Everywhere the, the sun touched, I just peeled. The skin came off. It was a horrible experience. I was sick. I had to lay down next to the road. People had to help me get on the bus, get home. I was broken and humbled. Humbled. So here's the thing about doing something like the Cape Town Cycle Tour. You know the lesson I learned? You need exercise, amen? amen? You need exercise to do something. And, and I've, I haven't learned my lesson because a, a few years after that, I did this um, Transpaviance, which is 230 kilometers on a bicycle in the Bavianskloef with very minimal exercise. And again, I nearly died. I haven't been on a bicycle since to give you an idea. It was about four years ago. Bought a bicycle. I sold it the other day with the dust of the Bavianskloef on it four years later about. <laughs> it was horrible didn't prepare. So here's the thing. When you do a race, you prepare for a race, otherwise you're going to end up like me. It's going to be horrible. On the other hand, who of you have found that exercise just gets really boring sometimes? Anyone? Okay. There's a couple of honest people here. Some of the rest of you, I'm not so sure. I feel like, and I've spoken to many people, when they say, I'm going to go for a run, they say, well, I've got a car, why would I want to go for a run? It doesn't make any sense. Just be like, why would I do it? It gets boring. So here's the thing: you need to bring the two things together, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make it connect to what I'm speaking about tonight. If you exercise and you're exercising for a race, the exercise makes sense because you're doing it for a purpose, it fits together. If you do a race and you've exercised, it works out and you don't die. The two things fit together. Exercise, I believe. To an extent, it helps you when you connect it to a race, and a race helps when you connect it to exercise. You still with me? The kingdom of God is the same. In the Bible, we have two big commands given to all of us to live out. And Jesus said actually that these commands are, are similar. The one is as important as the other. The first command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with everything that's in you. You shall love the Lord your God. For me, that's like exercise, loving the Lord my God is when I pray, it's when I read my Bible, it's when I spend time with people, it's it's in a sense like exercise, I'm exercising. But then Jesus gave us another command and he said, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so the one is the great command, but then Jesus also gave us in Matthew 28, the great commission. The great commission for me is like the race. He said, Yes, you can exercise. Yes, you can love me, but it needs to find an overflow in doing. It needs to find an overflow. And so the Great Commission is go, we're going to read the scripture now. Go into all the nations, make disciples of me. And I think there are many of you sitting here tonight, and many of you feel frustrated in your relationship with God. You feel like you find it difficult to pray, you find it difficult sometimes to come to church. You find it difficult to read your Bible. It it feels meaningless many times, and you're struggling. It's like you've hit a ceiling in your walk with God. I want to say to you, it might be because you're only thinking of the great commandment, but you've neglected the great commission. See, it seems so counterintuitive. I'm going to start loving God more when I start living for God, but it's the way of the kingdom. Am I making sense here? And some others of you you don't even love God properly, but you want to go out and you want to evangelize. What you're doing is you're hurting. You're hurting people. It's not healthy. But when we bring those two things together, life flows from it. And so I know there are some of you sitting here tonight and you say, I don't love God enough to be able to reach out for God, to make disciples for God. I want to tell you tonight that that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie. The devil will have you believe that you first need to love God to a certain extent before you can start reaching out with the love of God. But what the Bible says is, no, you need to bring those things together. You need to love God and reach out to others. And so every single Christian, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian, if you're not, we'll give you an opportunity later. But if you're a Christian, then the Bible commands you to make disciples of all nations. Let's read Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. I'm going to speak about tonight. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that's supposed to sound impossible. Make disciples, not just make disciples of all nations, but it sounds impossible because if it's not impossible, it's probably not God. It's an impossible thing that God is saying, I want you to do this. Don't try and think you're going to be good enough and then you do it. He's saying, if you're a Christian, go out, make disciples of all nations. We're going to speak about that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has been commanded to baptize other people. Who's baptized someone before in your life? It's not to condemn you, but if you haven't, you need to grab hold of this promise and say, God, I want to commit to this. I want to do this. I want to make disciples and baptize people. Next verse teaching these people to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So reaching out, making disciples, it's not Christianity 2.0. It's not like you're a Sunday Christian, then you become a Josh Jenner and you go to church twice a week. It's on a Sunday and a Wednesday. Then you're like a legit Christian. And then if you really want to be a Christian... You become a disciple maker. That's not what this verse is saying. It's saying if you're a Christian, your love for God needs to flow out into making disciples for God. It's a basic Christian command. It's not for the groot christeners, as Afrikaans people mistakenly like to say. It's not for the groot christeners. I'm becoming a groot christen now. So I've been eating a lot lately. <laughs> it's not for that. My wife told me the other day while preaching, she said, I can see your boop. You better make a plan. So... I'm going to try and make a plan. (laughs) So what does it actually mean to make disciples? Because that's really an important question. So you would say with me, okay, Leonard, maybe I need to make a shift in my life. I need to not only think about how I can love God and receive from God, but how I can love for God and give for God. It's a shift you need to make. But then the question is, how do we do that? And that's a question that many churches try to answer. And there are so many so many good ideas out there, but I think there are so few God ideas about how to make disciples. See, we can come up with our own strategies. We can say that we have a plan to do it, but I really think if we don't come to the scripture and say, God, what did you mean when you said make disciples? We're actually going to miss it. So you've got churches that have their discipleship models and they do it out of a good heart. They want to make an impact for God, but I I actually want to undo a little bit tonight and say, let's look at the scriptures and let's not look at our own ideas that we've come up with. And some churches say, if you're a Christian in this church, you need to do like the pay it forward model. You need to find three people. We give you some, some material and you sit with your three people. And those three people sit with three people who sit with three people who sit with three people who sit with three people. Anyone ever heard that strategy? Okay. It sounds quite biblical, but it's because it sounds quite like what Jesus did, I mean. He just did it with 12, but that's Jesus. And we like, we need to do three. It's like quarter of Jesus. We'll, we need to try. You get other churches who do the seeker-sensitive model. They say that doesn't work because our people won't do it. So what we do is we make church as amazing as possible. When you walk in, there needs to be lights and cameras And it needs to be smoke that comes out. And the preacher needs to be better looking than Leonard. All of those things. It needs to be there. Though I'm not too bad, but just a little bit better. I'm joking. You guys are so quiet tonight. (laughs) And they make everything seem so perfect because they think if we make the perfect church, then people will come. They'll experience Jesus and we'll make disciples. And I'm hoping if you've been in Joshua long enough that you don't want to be a part of a church like that because I don't think it glorifies Jesus. It's not, it's not authentic church, it's not what we should give ourselves towards. Some of you were part when we were still at Van Ertel, sport grounds, just sorry, I'm letting you raise your hands quite a bit tonight. That place was ugly. It was ugly. The walls were cracked. It's like when you come in, there's still bottles lying around from the party the previous evening. One morning we got there for church, And we actually started there with the evenings, and there was hot dogs everywhere on the floor, just hot dogs. Another morning we get there, and there was a wedding, but not a nice wedding, like a bad wedding. It's like drapes everywhere, and what's the shiny stuff on the walls? Anyway, the shiny stuff on the walls, and it feels like, what the heck is going on here? And you know what I miss about those days? Sometimes I I love the fact that we're in a beautiful building. Sometimes I'm like, God, I wish we were in a bad building again. Because if you're in a beautiful building, people come because it's a beautiful building. If you're close to campus, students come because they can walk. But I remember those days, and I said, man, we're growing. God is doing something here, but it can only be God because it's not this place. <laughs> this place is horrible. And I miss something of that. But many churches want to put up a perfect facade, and we can so quickly, as a church, we can fall into that place where we try and put up a perfect facade because we've got an organ now. And that's very early. And people will come but that's not what God wants. That's not what he meant by discipleship. We've got another models who say you need to have your 12 people because Jesus had his 12 people. And it sounds biblical, but I want to say tonight, I want to dismantle that a little bit and say, I don't think actually looking at the Bible that um, that that's what discipleship means. So are you ready to go there with me? It's going to be a bit of a history lesson. Okay. So all the BA students, I'm so sorry, but I won't make it too complicated. That's another. (laughs) It took all the BA students a long time to start laughing at that joke, but I think they got it now. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) right. So if we want to know what discipleship means, you know how we do it in the Bible. We ask ourselves. What did the original year is, year when they were heard Jesus saying, go and make disciples? Because Jesus, the the Bible wasn't primarily written for you. Ouch. It was written for other people. 2,000 years ago, this was written to another group of people. 12 and then a group of 120 people, this was primarily written to. So if I want to know what it means, it doesn't help if I make up my own ideas. I want to know what did the original group of followers hear, and what did they do? Because that's what I want to do. That's where the blessing of God is going to be, amen? That's what I want to do. So let's, let's go into some of the context of who these people were and what they heard when Jesus said that, and then we're going to look at how they lived it out, because I want to follow how they lived it out, because I really believe that that's where God is. So the, the term disciple, discipleship that we, that we read about here in Matthew 28, it's not a term that we find a lot in the Old Testament, there's a few references. Isaiah said that he had disciples. There's some talk of Moses having disciples, but it's it's actually very rare. Although the concept of mentorship was a big one in the Bible and in the Old Testament, the term disciples, it wasn't actually a big thing. But what happened was, in Jewish culture, because Christianity comes out of Judaism, it didn't just as Christianity, it comes out of a different religion in a sense. It comes out of Judaism. And within Judaism, there were these oral traditions, they were traditions that they sort of started um, developing over years. And one of these, in order to bring across the information and the things that they learned, was the concept of discipleship. And if you wanted to be a disciple in the Old Testament, you had to come under the teaching of a rabbi. Rabbis were those who taught people to be disciples. And there were four stages if you wanted to be a disciple and eventually become a rabbi or a um, scriba, scribe, <laughs> it's the Four stages, first stage. And this is actually amazing. Between the age of five and 10, if you were Jewish, you had to learn the first five books of the Bible by head. How do you say By, off by heart, off by heart sorry, at your corporate. Okay, you had to know all five of the books of the Bible. And I wonder how, much, how many of us actually know five verses out of our hearts. Imagine that. You're 10 years old. Imagine, how old are your, your children? Is, is one 10? Yes, 10 years old. Imagine being 10 years old and you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know it off by heart. Imagine that. That's step one. It's an eye call, right? We struggle to open up our Bibles in the mornings. They knew it by the age of 10. That's called Bet Sefer or the house of the book. Stage two When you became 12, when you were 10 years old, you went to Bet Talmud, or the house of learning. What you would then do is you not only learned the first five books of the Bible, but you would learn the oral traditions, meaning what do those things mean? So it's like the first five books of the Bible would be the rules, but then they would put rules around the rules. So, not allowed to make fire, but am I allowed to light a match, for instance? And that would be the oral tradition. What does this actually mean for us? And so between the age of 10 and 12, you learned the oral tradition. What what have we learned as a people? Who are the Jewish people? You'd learn all of those things. They didn't write those things down. It wasn't scripture because they didn't want it to be equal with scripture. It's different. And you had to learn all of those things. So for two years, you did that. Then when you became 13 years old, you had your bar mitzvah. You've heard of that, right? It's like a big party. And then you become a man or a woman. You become a man in God's eyes. I'm like, man, when I was 13, when I was thirteen, I was I was like doing all kinds of stupid things, shooting cars with paintball guns, ending up in jail, things like that, really, when I was 13 years old. And I'm thinking they, they became men when they were 13 years old. Then stage four, you would go to Beth Midrash, that is the house of study. And what would happen here is all the talents and students who had a lot of money, they could go and they could come under a rabbi. Rabbis were the learned people. They were the guys who knew what they were speaking about. And if you came under a rabbi, it was it was a massive honor. You couldn't just, they only chose a few people to become their disciples, these rabbis. So if you went to 12 and you were gifted, you were clever, and you were rich, you would leave everything behind and you would follow a rabbi to learn from him. What are his sayings? What are his traditions? And we read in other books that what they said is you actually follow in the dust of your rabbi you want his dust to come upon you was a saying that they had you want to become like your rabbi and then if you followed your rabbi and you learned what they call their holocaust and you memorized all of their things at the age of 30 30, you could become a rabbi or a scribe interesting at what age did jesus start his ministry 30 what did the people call jesus many times rabbi rabbi And so Jesus was actually a rabbi. Jesus probably, we don't know, probably Jesus went at least through the first two, probably through the third one as well. Some people say maybe with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was also a rabbi and he baptized people and so did Jesus. So it might be that he went through all of those stages with him. We just don't know. But Jesus was called a rabbi. In fact, he was called a rabbi by his disciples, Mark 4, 38 Mark 9, verse 38, he was called rabbi by by people on the street, so everyone knew him as a respected person, a rabbi. You want to follow this guy. He's, he's someone. Mark 9, verse 17, the Torah teachers, which were like his enemies in a sense, they called him rabbi. Matthew 22, verse 35 to 36, the Pharisees, who he rebuked many times, they called him rabbi. Luke 19, 39, and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very far, you see, and the Sadducees were very sad, you you see. And that was in Luke 20, verse 27 to 28. It's like since I became a, a dad, no one's laughing at my jokes anymore. <laughs> um, and then we see the rich young ruler, that's that well-known story. He called him rabbi. So Jesus was known as a rabbi. Now, here's an interesting thing. Jesus does it differently. Where normally you went from the age of five to the age of 12 and you had to study and show yourself approved and be someone and have a lot of money to come under a rabbi, Jesus comes and he goes to fishermen. If you were a fisherman, it meant you only went through the first and maybe the second stage, but you weren't lever or um, rich enough to go through the fourth stage to become a disciple of a rabbi. Jesus goes to these people. And he calls random fishermen and a tax collector, these people who didn't make it in the eyes of the people of God. He goes to them and he says, I want you to be my disciples. He breaks the norm. And I never understood this scripture. But in Matthew 4, verse 18 to 22, look at what happens. I didn't understand because what happens here is the disciples, when Jesus came to them and said, follow me, they left everything and they just immediately followed him. And I thought, was Jesus like glowing in the dark or something? He had a halo above his head. I didn't understand it. No, it's because he was a rabbi and most probably dressed like a rabbi. People knew he was a rabbi. It's interesting, the, the, the hem of his garment, you know that scripture? It's actually that word is tassels. So Jesus, we see sometimes he actually wore tassels. He wore the, the Jewish outfits. and um, So people knew he was a Jew and they knew most probably he was a rabbi. So listen to this. How amazing. Matthew 4, verse 18 to 22. I hope you still keeping up. It's all going to make sense now when it comes to us. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They didn't make it. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boats and their father and followed him. Jesus was a big deal. He was a rabbi. And these people counted it such a privilege to become followers of a rabbi, to become disciples, that they literally left everything that they had to follow him. We see other places someone coming to Jesus and say, "Can I be your disciple?" And he says, "But I first wanted to go bury 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 bury." Huh? Bury my father. And Jesus said, "No, no, no. The dead can bury themselves." Bury. my bury. I don't know. Begrawe. I will say Paul I haven't preached in a long time, guys. And there was really good tennis this afternoon. So I'm like, well, my own is going And Jesus said, no, leave everything. It's a high cost to be a disciple of the Lord. So now we get to this. Jesus, a rabbi, is standing in front of his disciples in Matthew 28. And he gives them this command. He looks at them and he says, go. And make disciples of all nations. And in a a real sense, that's almost like saying to them, but I'm going to tell you it's not what he's saying. Now you've become a rabbi and you make disciples. That's what we would think it says. But actually, things have been flipped here so much where they actually hear something else. And he says to them, I want you to go and make disciples. So the question is, what did they hear? They've been following this man for three years. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him brought salvation. They've seen him multiply fish and loaves to thousands of people. They know that he is the Christ, the living God, the one who came to die for the sins of the world. And now his last message to them is go and make disciples. I'm telling you, they had one thing on their mind and one thing alone. We need to obey our Lord and Savior, and we need to go make disciples. But what did they do? You know, it's interesting. None of them, as far as we read in the Bible, None of them did it the way that Jesus did it. Meaning I don't think that that's what Jesus meant. None of them went and found their own 12 disciples. Have you ever read that? None of them went to do that. That's not what they heard with discipleship. And I feel like in us as a church, something has crept in us that I want to correct where we've become, we've, we've come to such a place like we feel like we need to almost own people. You are my disciples and I am your rabbi. We don't call ourselves that. We call ourselves community leaders. We call ourselves helpers. We call ourselves deacons. We call ourselves elders. And actually, I don't believe that that's what these people did. We're going to go through it now. It's, it's not. It's not what they did. What did they do? They didn't go look for 12 people and call them and say, okay, now you become my disciple. No, what they did, they waited for God. Jesus said, if I go... It's better that I go because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. In Acts 1 verse 8, it says, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive my power to be a witness in all the world. And so they wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. The Holy Spirit gets poured out on them. We see in Acts 2, and they start speaking in different tongues. The Bible says it's like tongues of fire that come over them. They go on like drunk people, and you come to a church and you think this is weird. People ask them, why are you drunk? because the Holy Spirit came upon them. They had this encounter with God. And what do they do? Peter, the guy who messed up just now, forsook Jesus. He stands up and he says, He is the risen Lord, this Jesus that you crucified. He preaches the name of Jesus. And at that moment, 3,000 men get saved. 3,000 men get saved. It means there were at least, I would say, six to 10,000 people there who got saved. But no, it just says 3,000 were added to their number, eh? I think so. 3,000 people get saved, let's just say that. Now they sit with a dilemma. If they do it the 12 for 12 way, the math doesn't add up. Where's Luke over there? I'm not allowed to say. Luke got 99% for maths at school, I didn't say it, okay, he's really clever. <laughs> does, does the math add up? 120 people times 12, how much? it's under Okay, it's under 3,000, so it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What do they do? What do they do? How are they going to disciple 3,000 people? And I'm telling you, Staly's PM, I have no clue why people are coming to this church, but people are coming. And we can't sit and say, that's your person, this is my person, and and become like that. That's not what they did. What did they do? We've read this so many times. I'm going to tell you what they do. Acts 2 verse 42 to 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They started being family. How did discipleship take place? They lived our church. They lived our healthy church. It wasn't, it was a very healthy church. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, every day they came together, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How did they disciple? Those 120 people followed God radically with everything within them. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to meeting every single day. Not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, but daily. They lived like family. When one person had need, they sold what they had to look after that person. And that's how discipleship took place. It took place in a healthy church culture. And I can be wrong, but this is what I read in the Bible. That's how it took place. How are we going to disciple people that come in here? Primarily, it's going to be by living out a healthy church, by becoming a family. And I want to tell you, if you're sitting here and you think your relationship with God is only vertical, you are wrong. Your relationship with God will never come to where it should be if it's not horizontal as well. If you're not passionately jumping, it doesn't have to be this church, but jump into a healthy church. Give yourself, throw yourself in, look after each other as if we're spiritual family, live as if we're family. And then when others come in, they will follow what we do, and so they will be discipled. Am I making sense? Will we have to sit down with people? Sure. Will we have to ask, hey, will you reach out to that person? Sure. But primarily, it's by living these things out. So that's the first thing they did. The second thing they did is when they made disciples, they made disciples of Jesus and not of themselves. The season of disciple makings after yourself ended with Jesus. He said, go make disciples, but he didn't mean make disciples of Leonard, make disciples of Rico, make disciples of Yaku. It's not what he meant. He said, make disciples of me. And so when we go out, we can take this burden off of our soldiers. We, you, listen to me. Say it with me. I do not have to be a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do it like this. The COVID doesn't go everywhere. <laughs> I do not have to, to know the Pentateuch off by heart. Say it. Pentateuch is a big word for the first five books of the Bible. I don't have to know it off by heart. I do not have to learn the oral traditions. I do not have to follow someone for, yes, my math's tonight, 17 years, okay, in order to become a disciple. no. Because you are not supposed to be a rabbi, Jesus stays the rabbi and that takes a burden off of our shoulders. You do not have to be perfect. In a sense, what we're doing, there's a saying that says, "Disciple." I, I'm, I'm making it my own, discipleship is one hungry beggar showing another hungry beggar where to find food. You stay a disciple, you don't become a rabbi. So you don't have to have all the right words. You don't have to have the perfect, all you do is you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus come with me and be a disciple of Jesus. We're not rabbis, we're disciples. (laughs) Number three, sorry, and can I just stop there? I did say it earlier, but as a church, we really need to look out for that. I'm going to ask our leaders, actually, is this being recorded? Someone, yes, okay. I'm going to ask our leaders to listen to this because I feel like subtly it crept into us where we, you know what happens? If this thing, if we understand it, incorrectly and we start and and we do it out of a good heart we say as community leaders or as helpers in the community you look after those you look after those you look after those it's a good thing I'm not saying we shouldn't do it but it can so easily become a structure that we serve instead of the structure serving us and what happens then is and I've had conversations with people I tell them who's I ask them in the community leaders who's reaching out to person a because in this church, we want to look after every person. Every individual is valuable before God. If you're sitting here, you're not a number. You're not. I'm sorry. There's other churches where you're going to be a number. We want to love you, make you part of the family. And so if you are going through a tough time, we want to know. We want to reach out. So many times, we as elders sit with the community leaders. And, and I found this, and I asked a community leader, who's reaching out to Sonny? And, uh, and, and the person would say, I'm not sure who to ask because I don't know if there are any helpers in the community. And the helpers, is just a term we've created for people helping the community leaders. And I think that's so wrong. The Bible calls us a priesthood of all believers. Every one of you is supposed to know how to love someone else. How to sit and listen with someone else. How to have coffee with someone else. Not just a select few. We're a priesthood of all believers. The newest Christian is supposed to be able to reach out and love someone. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we can show that to others. So we cannot become possessive. We can't. We have to teach ourselves to um, everyone can reach out to someone. Number three, what they did is... Um, I'm just trying. <laughs> is they called the nobodies to become disciples. Actually, and they had this revelation because they were nobodies when they were called. They didn't look at people's learning. They didn't look for the clever. They didn't look for the rich. They called anyone because these people were not the rich. They weren't the clever. And that can be an encouragement for us. If you're sitting here, you don't have to be the rich. You don't have to be the clever. Again, I feel like I'm mixing my two points. Ignore what I'm saying. <laughs> but all you're doing is you're saying, man, I, I, I'm just the last person who Jesus saved. Won't you come and walk this journey with me? Won't you come into this church where I'm giving myself primarily? And it's not about this church, it's about just healthy church in general, not Josh Chen. It's not what it's about. And I serve God fully, and as I serve God fully, come alongside me, come people we love each other. We love each other. First Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 29. I'm almost done. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Maybe that's something that we struggle to admit in Stellenbosch, because in a big sense, we've got the cream of the crop here. But in, if you look at God's eyes, actually, we're not the cream of the crop. We're sinners, so far from Him. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to, to nothing things that are so that no human being might, might boast in the presence of God. How beautiful. We are not of those who boast and say, follow me. We're those who boast in the Lord and say, follow him. Follow him and I'll follow with you. I'm going to just say one last thing. I think one thing that, we, that I wish we had is they understood the Jewish culture that discipleship sprung out of. And because of that, I think they were more radical followers of Jesus than we are today. We're such an individualistic culture. It's all about me and Jesus. And they didn't have that. Um, I'm going to read this by Louis Teferberg, is the guy's name. He's a scholar. He says, speaking about disciples, these Jewish disciples, he says, a disciple was expected to leave his family and job to join the rabbi in his austere lifestyle. Disciples would live with the rabbi 24 hours a day, walking from town to town, Teaching, working, eating, studying, everything was about being under the the rabbi. They would discuss the scriptures and apply them to to their lives. The disciples were also supposed to be the rabbi's servant, submitting to his authority while they served his needs. Indeed, the word rabbi means my master and was a term of great respect. Now, I'm sometimes so envious of them because when they learned that they became disciples, they knew I'm coming under the great rabbi, Jesus. My entire life is laid down for him. My entire life. I leave my family. I leave my job. I serve Jesus above that. I follow him wherever he takes me. How many of us, I mean, feel like I might have lost my reward in heaven because I'm staying in Stellenbosch. It's so much like heaven already, I feel. But how many of us would say, God, where you send me, there I'll go. Wherever. That's how they understood discipleship. They lived with them, and uh, they served them as their master. Can I call us today that if we disciples, if we understand what it means in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, to make disciples and to be disciples, that we live lives totally laid down to our rabbi, Jesus Christ. Totally laid down because he died on a cross so that we could find him and serve him. Let's stand.